1: Good evening and welcome to Morse Mom Moments. What a thrill it is to be back and welcome to all who are joining us again and welcome to those who are new tonight. Uh, I'm so honored and thrilled and excited to talk with our guest tonight, as you will be too, who I'm about to introduce, but hold on before I get there. I want to explain to you all where you are tonight, who you're listening to and what you've gotten yourselves into. Uh, My name is Kathleen Smith. You're listening to Morse Mom Moments. I began Morph Mom about six years ago. I was an attorney many, many, many decades ago, stopped to have my kids, couldn't go back, didn't know what to do, and thought, rather than reinvent the wheel, I would go out and find out what other women were doing, what other moms who had gone back or women who didn't have children figured out what to do. I'd tell their stories, and I'd connect them with those out there trying to figure out what to do next or looking for guidance to go with what they knew they wanted to do but just weren't sure how to do it. So we began with a website, which is morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H, M-O-M.com. And you can go and see, I think we have over 800 videos of women all over the country. We cover, you you name a profession or a topic, we cover it. And if you're looking for one, we'll find it. Uh, you can go to the Huffington Post to read our articles. We have this radio show every Thursday night. We have a podcast, Morph Mom Moments, to hear more interesting stories. We have classes. And what's very exciting is it's coming Monday. We have a conference in New Jersey, and if you go on the website, you can look into it and see the amazing women who have agreed to join our panels and share their stories and their journeys and um, are just amazing, amazing, inspirational, and kind women. So I encourage you to go on and learn more about it and join us at the conference if you can. And uh, without further ado, enough about me and more about my guest, David Stone, tonight. Um, we are, As I said, I'm thrilled to have David Stone here David is the CEO of Merlin Productions and Stone Voice Entertainment. They develop and produce films, theater, and perform and works. And as I was discussing with David before, he's also a screenwriter, playwright, and director. But again, the best part is that he works with his amazing wife, Jenny, who is out there listening tonight and hopefully realizes um, just how important a part she is, and we're going to hear about this tonight, what an important role she plays in all of what David does as well. Um, again, as I said, David does feature films, documentaries, he's done work with the theater and all at the same time, he's an attorney. Uh, he's a managing partner at Stone Magnanini <laughs> <Dona Magnini. laughs> in, in, uh, in New York and New Jersey. Um, so what's so fun fa- to so welcome David and what's so fascinating, just the beginning intro is, so we've gone from this absolutely creative profession that you have going at the same time as a managing partner and a lawyer. Um, so it's it's so interesting that two very different career paths that, that you can maintain these paths at the same time. Um, but before we go into that, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up being involved in these two professions.
2: I apologize that I'm not a mom. I'll do my best. I am married to a mom. Um, <laughs> so I've always been interested in, I've always been a film fanatic. Um, and, and the interesting thing is I always was most interested in the directors. Like, if I liked the director, I would just go see any movie he made. I didn't really care, you know, what the movie was about or anything. Um, so I, I just... You know, I directed some films. And I was interested in that. And I also, at the same time, was interested in theater and musicals and things like that. And I was in some theater and musicals. So I always had that interest. Um, and... I think, as I told you before we went on the air, I was thinking of pursuing that, and when I got out of Harvard, which is where I went to school, um, I applied to USC uh, Film School and Law School, which was a joint program that they had, but I didn't get into film (laughs) school, so I had to go to Harvard Law School instead. You just had to do it. It was unfortunate, (laughs) but but anyway, and then so that put off my film career for some time. (laughs) as I had to go off and make money and, you know, do other things. Um, But I always had that interest. And, in fact, at one point I became the general counsel of the Yankee Nets, that owned the Yankees, the Nets, and the Devils. And so in that capacity I was working a lot with people in the entertainment industry, and so I made some relationships and connections. And one of the things that I've learned as a lawyer, I think you were a lawyer, so maybe you know this too, uh, that there's a lot of cross-pollination and networking, so um, what I've learned, and it's taken me probably 30 years to figure this out, is that, you know, you can focus on your passion maybe outside the law, but that there's connections that, that come from that, and that when people see you in positive situations where they're actually enjoying themselves, they're more likely to potentially you know, usually as a lawyer or whatever. Then if you just show up, you know, show up at a party and say, "Hire me! I'm a great lawyer." <laughs> so actually, it was useful to pursue my passion. So so I did that, and and it was really through that, through these relationships, that eventually I met people, and in particularly people in the beginning on Broadway. So I started doing things uh, connected to theater in Broadway. I did an off Broadway show called the Frankenstein the Musical. Uh, and sort of amusing about that is that we had this show. I don't know how much of this story I can actually tell, <laughs> but we had this this show, and the paper mill came to us, which is, you know, everybody in New Jersey knows we're in New Jersey. Um, and they said, We want this show to open our season. And we had the cast set, we had everything set. And uh, then a week or a couple weeks before it was supposed to open, they called us up and they said, um, We can't have your show because we're putting on happy days (laughs) because happy days uh, apparently had been turned into a, uh, a musical and they wanted the opening slot at the paper mill and the paper mill said, we can't, we can't have your show. (laughs) So all of a sudden we didn't have a, we didn't have a place to put on the show and all our cast uh, that we had that was cast in it left. So one of them got cast in uh, the high school musical, Disney high school musical (laughs) And then the other really funny thing is that our musical was called Frankenstein the Musical. And um, while we were developing it and while we were um, actually putting it on, um, Mel Brooks decided to write, to do Young Frankenstein the Musical. And he hired a number of our cast to be in Young Frankenstein the Musical. So we lost like our whole cast and we had to recast and we ended up putting it on off-Broadway um, at the same time as uh, <laughs> Young Frankenstein, <laughs> which was very amusing because a lot of people came to our show and thought they were going to see Young Frankenstein. So we actually <laughs> sold a lot of tickets that way. Oh, um, really funny. Yeah. So that was my first experience in, in theater, <laughs> both positive and negative. Um, but
1: what's encouraging about that story? So that's your yeah. you, that's your first experience, and there were ups and downs at the yeah. same time, and yet you continued and you kept going and now look where you are so at, was there any was there a moment in time when you were like wait a minute what am I doing like this is crazy that you ever hesitated and said I, I can't do this or did that almost encourage you to say wait oh yes I'm doing this and we're going to keep going
2: um that's a good question I asked a lot of people that I knew and I respected you know about being involved with Broadway and being involved with Broadway shows and they all pretty much unanimously said no, they're not getting <laughs> with Broadway. There's no way to Stay make away. money in Broadway. People who run, you know, theater, they're all terrible people. You know, you don't <laughs> want to deal with them. But in fact, there are some very nice people in, involved. There are some terrible people too, but there are some very nice people involved with um, Broadway, and, and I try to work with them, and, and, you know, and I've found some, some really good people Um but you have to be passionate about it because you have to realize that it's not about making money. Um, because you might you may make money, you get in, in, involved with the right production, you get involved with the right people. You know, it can be successful and it can be very profitable. But if you're not passionate about it, it's not not something that you really want to do.
1: So at that point, you didn't have the you you didn't have your company organized. Yeah, no. at that point, you were sort of flying solo on that. Yeah what happened that you then continued with this and how did you decide to begin Merlin Productions? Like
2: how did that all evolve? Okay. Very good question. So what happened is that I married Jenny, (laughs) um, who is my my wife, and she was very passionate and interested in theater and film. And so kind of jump started me and we were very much complimentary uh, people and so she would inspire me about things that I was thinking about doing. And I would inspire her the things she was thinking about doing. And actually one of the, this is sort of an interesting story. So we, she had a play that she had half written when she was at Villanova. She was a graduate student there. Um, and I had like scripts I had half written, and, you know, ideas for shows that I have written. And in fact, Merlin is something that I'm just obsessed with Merlin. Everything with me is Merlin. But <laughs> that's why it has to be Merlin productions. But anyway, um freaking Sandy happened and we had no electricity, we had no T V, we had no computer, we were just sitting in our house basically with candles and I said, Um, Jenny, you never let me read this play that you half wrote in, you know, college. Why don't you take it out and let me read it? So I read it and I said, This is pretty good, you know, what's the rest of it? And she said, I don't have a rest of it. <laughs> This we well, you should have a rest of it. This is the play. You should really write it. So we ended up writing it together, basically, wow, we had no electricity and now we had no... So um, you know, it was easy because we couldn't do anything <laughs> else. So, so we really had to focus. And we found that actually we worked really well together because she was very creative and had good ideas and I I'd kind of am very in, into plot and you know and, and character and, like, developing character um and so we wrote this play and then we had some relationships through people that i knew at the paper mill and and other people that i knew through theater um and they helped us fund to put this play on off broadway so we said well now we need a company (laughs) we can't just go put this play on and not have a company so you know we, we, we started merlin productions and we actually started doing other things we did um these, these monologue slams with actresses in New York, which were really fun. So we would get Broadway actresses and some, you know, amateur actresses that would come and they would do monologues and everybody would, would get drunk and we'd have a really good time. And so, so we had that. Um, and then this is the interesting part. So, I'm, you know, I was at a firm called Boy Show Lexter. David Boys,' is a fairly well-known lawyer, was uh, the head of that firm. And I was friendly with him. I'd been in a bunch of cases with him. And I became friendly with other people in his family, including his son, whose name is David Boyce III, which is very confusing, but that's his name. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, we invited everybody we knew. To, I directed this play. So what happened is we, we, we raised the money and we put this play on off-Broadway. And, and and it's called and the, diary. the Diary.
1: Okay, this is The Diary.
2: A romantic uh, comedy about sisters and insanity and igloos. <laughs>
1: I'm one of four girls, so that
2: couldn't possibly ever happen. Um, uh, so, and we got a really good cast, and anyway, and so we decided I'm going to direct this because what else am I ever going to get to direct? <laughs> and so I directed it, and um, a number of people came to it and really liked it, and one of them was David Boys the Third. So David the III the Third and I went to dinner after w- one of these performances, and he said. You know, what else are you, Jenny, doing? <laughs> so I said, what else do you want us to do? So he said, well, you know, are you interested in making films? And I said, yeah, I am interested in making films. I haven't, you know, I, I've had some you know, minor involvement in that, but I really haven't been that involved. And he said, well, I want to make films with you because I think you're creative. I think you're, you're smart, all this. So I said, okay. <laughs> so we formed Stoneboys Entertainment and the rest is history.
1: Now, is it one? When you say um, Merlin Productions and Stoneboys Entertainment, it's now one yeah,
2: production so Stone company. Bo- Stoneboys Entertainment is kind of like the overarching, mm-hmm. and all our productions and everything are under that. So the Merlin Productions are under that, um, and then there's some that David, like David did Wakefield with Brian Cranston, and that was under that, but um, yeah, that was like his project. We each have our sort of pet projects. I did carefree with Fred and Ginger, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, which is a, uh, a show that's touring the country. That was um, choreographed by Warren Carlyle, who's the award-winning choreographer.
1: So, okay, so he approaches you. You join forces, and Jenny as well. So it's like yeah. a we've got this trio now coming at us. Yeah. Um, and do you sort of decide like, all right. I'm going to take on so when you develop this company you're going to produce as well as develop mm-hmm. it's it's coming yeah. so talk, can you talk a little bit about that development and production like what that means exactly to produce yeah. and do you decide we're going to take on film theater and other things or when you very when you begin are you saying we might just do theater for, like how does that work
2: well it's it's an interesting thing. I think what you do is you announce that you have a film and theater (laughs) development company and then people start emailing you, calling you, meeting with you and saying, I have this project, whatever. Um, And then you kind of go with your passion. So, I mean, we, I am on the board of the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. I am very friendly with people there, including uh, the CEO. And, you know, so they had projects that, that we supported. Um, And that we helped sort of make happen. Um, And then I'm also very involved with Sundance. And so we met all these people through Sundance. And then once they know, you know, that you have a film development company, they start, you know, bringing projects to you. So um, that's kind of the way it's, it's, it's kind of a a networking thing. Um, But I would say a really good way to get involved. If you want to be involved with film, Go to these film festivals because you meet more people in line, you know, that are involved with the industry and, you know, in a very kind of positive anchor situation um, and you make relationships, you know. And with the
1: company, so when you say people come to you, so will they come to you with like a seed, an idea and say, can you help me turn this into something? And can they also come to you with a full-blown script and say, can you help me get this to the next step?
2: all of the above i mean people will come to you literally and say i have an idea for a movie that's an idea um would you like to help me make it (laughs) you know and then you go to lunch with them and they'll tell you about their ideas usually those are not people that i that i end up working with um more often they come to you at a minimum with a script um for me the script is you know the most important thing i mean we have how many films did we have at Sundance? We had like three films at Sundance. Um, one of them, Night Comes On, uh, which I strongly recommend everybody go see, um, is a really beautiful film made by a woman named Jordana Spiro, who is like an incredibly beautiful woman. She's, I mean, in a, I mean, inside. She's also a beautiful woman outside. I mean, inside. inside. She, um, she's an incredible person, but she's an actress. She's very talented. She's in... Um, Ozark, yeah. which you may have heard of. I, um, I actually just watched the entire you, thing of Ozark. Anyway, you've seen <laughs> yeah. Jordana Spiro, but and she decided she wanted to be a director, and she had made a, an award-winning short, which I watched, which was very weird and, and <laughs> kind of I couldn't believe this was made by Jordana Spiro, but brilliant, you know. So I said, okay, so so I was really more involved with that. I mean, because I was actually when the script was being put together with something she went to Sundance and and had workshop and actually, I'll tell you a funny story about that, so, you know, Sundance will, this is another thing maybe people would like to know, that you can actually apply to Sundance if you have a script um, to be in there, like, script writing lab, and they'll bring you to Sundance, I mean, there's not a lot of people that get that opportunity, but, you know, if you apply, you can't, you can't get it if you don't apply, um, they bring you in, and then they bring, you know, very famous, you know, like, the person that wrote Transparent, and the And, you know, um, Tarantino and, you know, all these different people come and they read your script and they help you develop your script. And then they have something called, you know, a director's lab, which you also can go to potentially. And they bring directors that are super famous directors that come um, and work with you and help you learn how to direct. So Giordano, Giordano was doing that. She told me a funny story. She'll probably kill me for (laughs) now telling. But she told me that um, Quentin Tarantino was one of her you know, and she was doing this very touching story about an African American woman that was caught up in the um, in the foster care system, and her father had, you know, been abusive and ended up killing her mother. And so, you know, it's a very touching story about her, her connecting with her younger sister, and she hasn't seen him for 10 years. Um, and Quentin Tarantino said, "Why don't you make her an assassin?" <laughs> You know, so it's like they're coming at it from their, you know, perspective. So, you know, you got to go to these things and sort of listen. And by the way, that was the same thing with Frankenstein. I mean, everybody had their view of what this show should be about. And if you just listen to everybody, you you, you never have any vision, you know. So sometimes you just got to go with your vision and do what you can do.
1: So I have a question about that. So let's say in Giordano's experience or, or like in that situation, so you're presenting and you're you're so encouraged and lucky to be in that situation but someone who's got that stature makes a suggestion but you really you really believe what you wrote and it's in opposition to what they're saying how do you what how do you deal with that situation
2: yeah no i mean i think it's a really difficult thing and i think jordana was really strong because she was like this is you know i believe in my vision and you know, I really appreciate you're a brilliant person and I, I love your movies and everything, but this isn't right for my movie, you know, and, and, and that's, that's what you have to have to do. I and think.
1: do you run a risk of them saying, well, if you're not going to turn her into an assassin or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. then sorry, it's not for us? Yeah. Uh, what, what happens then? So I guess, are there other avenues to pursue it if that happens?
2: Well, I'll tell you one thing. If, if people that are interested in this topic that we're talking about, you should go see this movie called The Big Picture. With um, Kevin Bacon, I think it is, um, because it's a great example of like you know, the sort of starving independent director that goes to Hollywood. And they want to change his movie, you know, from like something that's Kafka-esque to yeah. like you know, on the beach with beach balls <laughs> and beautiful girls and like. No, I don't think this movie that's set in Russia (laughs) (laughs) in the wintertime is (laughs) going to work. Because they watch how real, it's not going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, no, but, and again, I I guess Jordana trying to kill me again, but but another story is that she came into this, she had originally, the script originally had a brother and a sister. And um, when she went into the script writing things, she met with a lot of people and they said, you know, you have this very strong female aspect to this this, this movie and um, it just seems like this could be a lot stronger if it was sisters. And she actually changed it to make it sisters and it's very powerful with sisters. So, you know, you have to be open to criticism if it makes sense for your movie, but you also have to be willing to say It doesn't work for me. If, you know. So the answer is sometimes you just have to turn people down. I mean, there's this or maybe true story about uh, Sylvester Stallone. I don't know if you know this story. But basically, you know, he, for years and years and years, he had the script to Rocky and, you know, he basically had no money. He, at, at at a certain point, he was like living in his car with his dog and he, then he had to give up the dog because he didn't have enough money to feed the dog. And meanwhile, he was, you know, going and everybody was saying, no, this is a terrible script. Why would we make this? You know, blah, 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 blah. And um, he wanted not only to make it, he wanted to direct it and star in it, right? And so, you know, everybody's like, you're crazy. You can't make this. You can't direct star. So he went to, he finally found some crazy person that said, I will give you a million dollars for the script, but you can't direct it and you can't star in it. We're, you know, we're going to get so-and-so to direct it. And he said no, and he was like, living in his car, right? So then, you know, a year later, he found somebody that would let him direct it and star in it and, you know, the rest of the rest history. So, I mean, I think that's the story about how passionate you have to be in film yeah. and theater to really yeah. be, believe, in your, believe in your, you know, in yourself and your project.
1: So, for those out there trying to figure out, like, how to to do this. So, you you, you could apply. If you've just a script, you can make these applications to a Sundance or to a right. film festival. Right. But what if you don't, you don't get it? So you apply and you don't get it. Now, I have a mm-hmm. script. I still believe in the script. How would you advise those out there? Like, what's the next step? Do you find a company like yours? And do you, do,
2: do people come and pitch it to you? And, like, extremely, extremely hard. And particularly with, you know, well-established companies like in Hollywood because they are so concerned about getting sued. You know, so somebody sends them a script. They read it, and then 10 years later, they make a movie that has one of the characters that seems like a character in that script, <laughs> and then they get sued, you know? So um, that's that's where you have the problem. In fact, I don't know if you know that since I'm a lawyer. I don't know if you know the lawsuit they had, but they had a lawsuit about, you know, Kung Fu Panda. Oh, so they got sued for Kung Fu Panda, and this person claimed, you know, I had the idea for Kung Fu Panda, and I sent this to... Them and they rejected it, and, you know, and he sued them for millions and millions of dollars. And then um, apparently this is pretty amazing. But during discovery, one of the clever lawyers for Disney or whoever it was um, noticed that his his like um, sort of drawings for Kung Fu Panda were exactly the same as like a Kung Fu coloring book that came out after the movie. <laughs> So, you know, clearly, you know, he didn't have the idea before the movie. But anyway, the point is they are worried about that. And so, you know, if you don't come, you really have to come through an agent or through somebody who has a relationship to probably get your script read. Um, And so, you know, make friends with agents, I guess, (laughs) you know. Um, But, you know, as I said, you know, Sometimes you just go to these, these like film festivals, you meet somebody, you get them excited and you know maybe they'll read it. you never know. You, you never know.
1: So with your company, so now let's say you take on a project.
2: Yeah.
1: Are you co-producing with other production companies? Or how does that normally or, or is that or is it just depends on the project. It could be just yours or depends other produ- producers?
2: Project. I mean sometimes we're just you know funding, sometimes we're helping with the script, sometimes we're involved with the casting. Sometimes we're, you know, doing the entire production. Um, so, I mean, you know, most films have a number of producers involved. And, um, you know, uh, there's lead producers and, you know, not lead producers. And everybody brings something. And, you know, you can't make the film without, without everyone. But, um, you, know, it's, you know, with films, like independent films like this, it's very hard for one company to do the whole thing.
1: And I, I don't know if this ever happens, but are there times when, so now we have, let's say, three different producers on board, all yeah. um, potentially with different visions or if there is a disagreement or not necess- or, or just a um, uh, difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. How is that resolved as far as when it comes from the producers
2: as opposed to the creatives? By the contracts. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you put in the contract, you know, whatever you can get, in terms of like, I get cast approval, I get this approval, I get plot approval, I get script approval. And either you get that or you don't, you, know, if you don't have it, then you don't have a say. Um, but, and you know, there's been some stories of really, you know, like movies that were killed because, you know, the, the, the writer couldn't agree with the producer that, you know, on the final script or, or whatever. So, um, you know, I, was it, the, I forget his name, Bob Evans who wrote, you know, the, was the boy? you would be in the picture, whatever that he is. I forget the name of his book, but great book, by the way, if you ever get a chance to read it. But, you know, he said that he basically had the right to recut The Godfather, and he recut The Godfather, and really it's all his credit, that, that film, that the original film that was made, you know, by the director was unwatchable, and if, you know, he hadn't had Final Cut and hadn't cut it, you know, it wouldn't have been this. And who knows whether any of that's true? You know, Harvey Weinstein says that all the time, right? Harvey Weinstein takes credit for every film he's ever he's ever produced. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: all right. So now, again, those of you joining us right now, I'm talking to David Stone, and this is such an exciting and informative conversation as well because I'm actually fascinated by this, and we all love these. We all love theater. We all love. You know what we see but what goes on behind the scenes and how does that get to what we see how does the the seedling of an idea get to what we see and basically that's what producers do and they get it to come to us um so david is involved as i mentioned before with feature films documentaries and theater but there's one and i'm selfishly going to direct the hard <laughs> conversation towards which I am literally giddy with excitement, and I have to confess, I watched the trailer six times today because I was just so excited about it. Um, Won't You Be My Neighbor is a film, a documentary that David's Company is involved with and his wife Jenny's involved with, and it's about Mr. Rogers, and it's a documentary, and I'm just, again, selfishly directing this towards that as a child who watched Mr. Rogers all the time, but how did that come to be, and how did you get involved with that project?
2: Um, Let me tell you in a second. I do want to say, by the way, because I I promised I would say this, that uh, Jenny and I wrote a book, (laughs) a children's book together, mainly Jenny. Um, It's called um, Mirabelle and the Magical Music Shop, and you can get it on Amazon. So um, I wanted people to know that. It's a really beautiful, beautiful book about a little girl who lives in a snow globe and escapes and goes into Lincoln Center and sees opera and it's it's, it's, it's really good anyway <laughs> let me okay so the question is out won't you be my neighbor? so um I just think this film is, is amazing I just think it's so touching and so beautiful and um actually I, I you know I tell everybody go out and watch the trailer <laughs> because this is one of the best put together trailers I've ever seen because Having seen the film many times, it really captures a lot of what's in the film. A lot of people, you know, trailer will show you a little bit about, about what's in the film. But this really gives you a good sense of what's in the film. And it's, uh, uh, Focus Features is going to release it. It's going to be in theaters in June, I think June 8th. you go see it. Um, but you want to know how it came about? Is, is that what you want? Yes, I, I just, the question. I'm
1: just so excited. I'm like kidding. I don't even know what I asked. But how you became involved with, like, so we were talking about how as a a production company, how you become involved in a project. So, are and and sometimes do you seek out a project? In this case, was it brought to you, or is this something you heard about and you sought after? Sure.
2: So, I got to tell you first a little bit how it came about, and then I'll tell you how I came about. (laughs) So, Morgan Neville was the director of an of unbelievably talented documentary filmmaker. He made a documentary called 20 Feet from Stardom, which won, a, won an Academy Award at Backup Singers, which is really amazing. Um, so he had made a, a, a documentary with Yo-Yo Ma, um, and it's called like The Music of Strangers, and it's, um, it was on HBO. Yeah, so um, he and Yo-Yo Ma became friends, And Morgan Neville had been thinking about doing something with Mr. Rogers. It's one of these things like, Oh, you know, uh, there's a great interview. I think you'd probably get on the internet with Morgan where he's talking about how he decided to do this. And he said, most of the movies I've made are like things that I was fascinated with since I was like 14 (laughs) you know. (laughs) and I'm finally getting to make movies about this. So he was, he always was interested in Mr. Rogers. So, um, but anyway, so he was talking to Yo-Yo Ma and Yo-Yo Ma, he said to Yoyama, Ma, you know, you're such a poised, you know, nice person. If you've ever met Yo-Yo Ma, he's amazing. But anyway, um, you know, how did you learn to, like, deal with the celebrity, being a celebrity? And Yoyama said, I learned it from Mr. Rogers. And so, of course, that was a surprising answer. So, you know, Morgan <laughs> never said, Mr. Rogers. Yeah, so I went on his show a few times, and he could tell that I was, like, uncomfortable with, being somehow like having fans and, and people, you know, being, and so he kind of took it upon himself to help me learn how to like uh, be a celebrity in a way where it was a positive force for humanity and that I could really be excited about being a celebrity. And, you know, he was like really important to me. So, um, well, you wow, that's really interesting, you know, and he had already been thinking about making, something about Mr. Rogers. So he said, well this kind of crystallizes. And then it turned out that, you know, Yoyama and his family were friends with the family of Mr. Rogers. So they had a relationship. So because um, they maintained a relationship. So and um, Yo-Yo Yoyama's son, Nicholas Ma had worked on the uh, the Yoyama documentary. So was, and he knew people. So it ended up that you, that he became the producer of of this. Be, wow. and, you know, made the relationship for Morgan with, you know, the estate and everything of Mr. Rogers. And so it was like a marriage made in heaven and kind of went from there. So the way I got involved with it is I have a number of people I know at Sundance and, you know, they bring me things or they bring me to pitches where they say, this is something you should come to. You should hear this. And, and I went to it and um, Nicholas was there and Morgan was there and I love Morgan. I mean, I probably would make Morgan, you know, a documentary about the phone book, I don't care. <laughs> but but he, um, and they literally had, you know, five minutes of, you know, like, they hadn't made the film, it's not a script, right? So for a documentary, that's the hard part, right? You you, you don't, all you have is their vision, right? And maybe a few, you know, and, and with some of these people, what they do is they just get things off the internet. I mean, that's not what they do, yeah. but they get things off the internet and they say, like, here's this snippet from this other movie that's going to be, like, what my movie is. You know? That's literally what they do. I'm not kidding. Like a lot of people do that. I mean, literally, in Hollywood, this is not at all unusual. You'll get a pitch book, and it'll be it'll just have, you know, like a scene of Bruce Willis in, like, Death Wish, and it'll is the first scene in the movie. Yeah. So, and, and then the other thing that I love is that they have at the end, is, like, they'll have Big Fat Greek Wedding, and they'll say, $300 million. Like, this is exactly like Big Fat <laughs> Greek Wedding. Yeah, but what about the other 500,000 films? that There's no money. You know? I mean, it's like, but, they, you know, they think you're really going to go for that. But in any event, so you know, they did that, and, and it really was very pointed. They showed, by the way, everybody go on YouTube and look at the testimony of Mr. Rogers before Congress which is so touching it's on youtube you can go see it it's in the film too but um and he had they had that i was like okay i'm sold you know this is going to be a great film i always liked mr rogers i thought he was sort of an interesting phenomenon um and you know just perfect team so uh, i knew it was going to be a successful film oh yes
1: and i want to introduce my co-host another kathleen tonight yes Join This conversation, by the way, for anyone out there who ever watched Mr. Rogers, I-, I am telling you, the second you stop listening to the show, don't do it right now, you're going to go watch this trailer and you're going to be waiting by your calendar for the date that this opens. So you made a comment that with documentaries, they pitch the their vision or their storyboard to you. How did they pitch this
0: to you?
2: And
1: what was it about it that grabbed you? Other than you liked Mr. Rogers, as we all do. We all did, right?
2: Um, what was it in particular about this one? So First of all, it, I think the pitch really was, there's so much about Mr. Rogers that people don't know and don't understand. Right. Like this, and I can tell you some of this stuff, It's in some of it's in the film, but, you know, he was such an amazing person. And he actually had a very strong vision of what he wanted to do with his show. It wasn't just some show with puppets, you know, that you turn on and, oh, here's these cute puppets. I mean... <laughs> he had a very strong vision about what he wanted and how he thought children should be taught. Um, you know, he worked with like some of the like Hmm. most well-known psychology, child psychologists of the time, uh, who were like developing ideas about child psychology. He was a, a, you know, a pastor. Um, yeah. And so he had a, you know, he had this whole religious, uh, you know, thing. Um, And, you know, one of the best things I think, you know, and I think it's, I think this is in the film, but um, he believed that, and this is something, by the way, I strongly believe, he believed that, you know, if you speak to children sort of in a very, you know, calm, slow, um, impassioned way, they will learn much better than if you speak to them, you know, in a very excited, you know, or Fast talking or whatever, and that they actually know, children are much more um, mature than, than people understand. They have emotions like adults have, and you know, and and that you know, um, and so he had this approach, and so of course he went to this TV station. And he said, "I'm going to make this 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 show where I'm going to be the host. I talk, I talk like this. You can barely hear me." <laughs> I talked this slowly, um, then we're going to have these puppets that, that I made myself, you know, and the they're, kingdom. are going to teach, you know, they're going to teach lessons to the children. And it was like the anti-TV show <laughs> that anybody who was in TV would think would possibly be successful. And then it was, they ran for like 20 right. years or some crazy thing. But, and what, what you learned was kids, children really did um, and he had shows. Of, he had shows after the assassination of John F. Kennedy or Robert F. Kennedy. You know, where he talked about assassination on the Mister Rogers show and what is assassination? Because he knew children were trying to deal with that. and parents were probably not. You know, he felt like I need to explain to the children what's going on because they're probably frightened and scared, and why is everybody so sad? And you know. Um, and then he had a show. On, he had a couple of shows on divorce mm-hmm. and what it's, you know, what divorce means. Um, and then another example was, which this is pretty amazing. So there was all this stuff going on with refusals to allow African American sure, to be to be in swimming pools. You know, like somehow that was, you know, they had to be segregating whatever. So he had a show. He had an African American man that was on the show. That was, I think, he played the mail or maybe the policeman. He was the mailman. The mailman. Yeah, he would
1: come every day.
2: The mailman.
1: Yeah, I, the,
2: mailman. yeah, yeah, yeah. the mailman. Um, and he had a show where he was uh, washing his feet. Uh, Mr. Rogers was washing his feet. And he had. He said, come wash your feet with me in this little foot pool, waiting pool. And, and he did. And then they were talking. And like that was the most subtle thing, right. but so revolutionary right? In, wow. in terms of what he was doing and sort of. Projecting to children about inclusiveness, and so there's all this stuff that people never would think of with mm-hmm. Mr. Rogers that was there. That I said this is, you know, going to be really interesting. People are going to like this. And the last part of it is the civility, mm-hmm. the, the the whole idea of a neighborhood. Like, I don't know how many times my wife says, I wish we really lived in a real neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> she'll know it. She'll laugh at that. <laughs> but you know, they don't have those anymore you know, it's it's not, you know, it's just, and the whole concept of everybody sort of being together and being civil and, you know, telling the truth to everybody. And, you know, and so, you know, in this time, it seemed like, you know, this is something that people should be watching and thinking about and, you know, saying, what happened? (laughs) How do we get back to this kind of, yeah.
1: So what's fascinating is so once we knew David was coming on the show and I started to send out the trailer to people to say you gotta look at this mm-hmm. and then I watched the trailer and I watched it again and I watched it again and I realized there's so many things that apply in my age I'm learning from the show that I did back then. What drew me then is drawing me again and I don't think I realized at the time what it was. And another That's thing one other
2: funny thing. Um there's a there's an episode in Mr. Rogers where the king wants to build a wall. <laughs> Is that unbelievable? <laughs> that. No, he, he was city. a prophet on top he of it. He <laughs> wants to bring, build a wall and all the like, you know, citizens are saying, Don't build a wall, you know, because it'll be viewed as <laughs> keeping people out and you know that we're being excluding people, and, you know, and you know, that isn't what we want to be and, and Mr. Rogers, <laughs> like you know, fifteen years ago, whatever it was.
1: Like so okay. <laughs> anyway there is something that so when i was watching the trailer earlier again another thing and it's funny when i came tonight and we sat and i showed someone who just happened to walk by i said look at this trailer david stone's coming on look at this trailer and he got a little teary when he was looking he's like i remember it. like i remember all this there's something about it there's a the nostalgia but i think it's because of what you're saying it's not just the nostalgia but it was that he treated you like you were worthy of understanding. You were worthy of the explanation. Yeah. And there's something in the trailer when they show a little boy who has disabilities. And he said, yeah. you know, he said, are you blue today? He said, I'm not blue because I'm with you. And the little boy with disability says, I'm not blue, I'm with you. And there was just something about that where his kindness transcended, like, everything. There was no bullying. There was none of this, like, if only Mr. Rogers would here today, with his social media bullying and all of this stuff, it just, it transcended all of it. And it just went to the base level of just kindness and being understanding one another on a different level. So when you were doing this documentary, was there, and I think everything probably emotionally affected you, was there a scene or was there a moment or something that really, really touched you and you thought, this is why I'm doing it?
2: Um, I mean, I think the scene you just talked about, I mean... I I was at the premiere in Sundance and I don't think there was a single person that wasn't crying at the end of that scene because um, it's a little boy. He's got some very bad disease. I don't remember which one, but he's in a wheelchair. His arms are kind of all shriveled up and he's got this really cute smile and he's so happy to be with uh, Mr. Rogers. And then Mr. Rogers says, you know, I want to sing this song with you. And it's like, um, you know, I'm a, I forget what the song is, but it's something about, you know, very life affirming and about, and, and the little boy starts to sing it with it and it's so touching. It's like, Oh oh my God. But, and it really brought home to me um, how his ability to just, you know, connect with anybody. I mean, and, you know, and, and, you know, what I learned, you know, in the in the course of this documentary. Like there's all these people, world leaders, you know, celebrities, people, you know, very successful people who love, you know, Mr. Rogers. That were friends, many of them were close friends of Mr. Rogers. And so like, really? Like, you know, like Shaw, whatever, close friends of Mr. Rogers. But obviously he had some ability to connect. I mean, so yeah, that scene just, just devastating mm.
1: devastating scene. It, okay. it is. I am telling you, I've watched it six times and I get to hear every single time watch the exact same thing. Mm. So again, so we talked about what motivated you to be a part of this and what touched you being a part of this. When you're doing these documentaries, um, and we were talking about who has got the creative control over what happens. Was there ever a time in this documentary where you sort of thought maybe we should go a different direction, or maybe, or was it just sort of a feel-good thing where he just transcends all of that, and everyone was sort of on board with, this is the way
2: we have to portray the this? The to that, as I said before, is what's in the agreement, and it wasn't in the agreement. <laughs> whatever I thought didn't really matter, but, um, no, I mean, look, Morgan was the soul of this, you know, and everybody trusted Morgan, so... Um, I knew, I was very comfortable that this film was going to come out, you know, and, you know, be what we wanted it to be and what everybody wanted it to be because it was he was so passionate about it. And so was Nicholas. He was very passionate about it. So, you know, I guess that's my answer.
1: So, and I can't believe we have a few minutes left, I could talk to you about this all night long. I want to ask you, I'm going back to Jenny, your wife, who's not here tonight, but is a very integral part in your company and your business. She's here. And it definitely inspired. And she's the reason that you're here with me tonight. Um, and for those out there wondering, like to work with a partner, to work with your wife, and then your children to see this. Um, can you can you talk a little bit maybe about that? Like how instrumental it is that your children can see that you can work together and then coming up with a production like this Mr. Rogers film just must be I don't know. I don't know how you teach your kids any better than this.
2: Yeah. Um, I, look, I think the ability to share passions with your wife, your significant other, is like critical to a successful relationship. And you always have that. You know, you always, you know, when you're fighting about <laughs> you should take out the garbage. <laughs> you know, um, you have that. You need that foundation. You know, um, And I also strongly believe that to be good parents, you need to have outside passions and interests and not be just, you know, and, and I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, <laughs> not just be a mom. I mean, I think the best moms are moms that have outside passions and, you know, feel fulfilled as people and then contribute that and, you know, sort of model that for their children, right? Um, and Jenny W. does that. I mean, she's she's really sort of wonderful, but, um, you know, I just, um, it's, it's really great to have someone that, you know, you can collaborate with and you can really feel that you both are, you know, working towards the same goal and and, and also, you know, there's certain things she I can't do. There's things she can do. I just can't do them. There's things that I can do that she definitely can't do, <laughs> but together, you know, the, the, the is better than the parts, as they say. Oh, I don't
1: want you to go. We have one minute left. All right. So everybody out there, again, I'm talking with David Stone, the CEO of Merlin Productions, Stone Voice Entertainment. If you go to their website, you'll see all the films that they've done, from feature films to documentaries to their theater productions as well. And we were speaking most re- recently about the um, Who Should Be My Neighbor, which will be coming out June 8th. Mm-hmm. And if you want to find anything, uh, David, tell the best way to find out about these films, what to do, how to find out about your production company, if they have a script, if they want to reach out to you. And all things, <laughs> <laughs> And again, the children's book. We're not to talk
2: about that. Well, don't send me scripts. script. <laughs> <laughs> That'll create all kinds of liability. But um, you know I, we have a, a website. It's actually sort of we just changed our website, so it's a, it's still somewhat in, in progress. But you can go to that. It's www.stoneboys. I think. dot com. It's B O I S, not B O Y S. Um, David Boyes the third. It's my Parker. So Stone Boys. Yeah. Um, in terms of the film, I mean, there's a lot of information about the film on online. Just go online and put in "Won't You Be My Neighbor." And it'll tell you, you know, when the film's coming out and in what theaters and all of that. And, um, you know, I encourage you to go see it. I think you'll enjoy it. I don't think you'll regret going to see it. It's, it's really... A-
1: and one last thing about the children's book. David and his wife wrote a play together and most recently written a children's
2: book together. So how can people find that? Okay, so that is on Amazon. It's called Mirabel, Mirabel and the Magical Music Shop. I think I got it. <laughs> And she goes on adventures with the opera cat, and goes to the opera and learns about music. And and that's both on Amazon and I think it's also on barnesandnoble.com. So either one of those, you can go and you can buy it. Um, You can also go to Milburn (laughs) here in New Jersey (laughs) (laughs) and buy it at the Milburn bookshop. But I think if you're not in Milburn, then I would suggest go online and get it. I
1: can't believe our time is up right now. Thank you for the inspiration for so many things we've learned. First of all, you can follow two paths as a lawyer and, a, and producing these films. You're doing two things that you love. You're doing them with your wife. You're, you're being creative and doing everything, following every passion you wanted to do. So I think that's an example to all of us. But then on top of that, just thank you for getting these stories out there. Dust. Thank you for allowing that Mr. Rogers story to be told and these other stories to be told. Because without this, I mean, you're now passing this on to generations of our children who may not have known him before. But now because of you and because of the people you work with, you're now spreading his goodness to the whole so new generation.
2: I in that regard that uh, I think Mr. Rogers' uh, family is behind this new show, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Daniel Tiger was the name of oh right. <laughs> Daniel Tiger. Yeah, who was, he was the alter ego of, right. of Mr. Rogers on the Mr. Rogers show. <laughs> so there's some of those same issues are being explored in Daniel Tiger's neighborhood so you might want to check that out for your children children.
1: and everyone thank you all again for those of you new to us I hope you come back next week and for those who come back I'll see you next week good night everyone it's such
0: a good feeling to know you're alive it's such a happy feeling you're growing inside and when you wake up ready to say I think I'll make a snappy new day It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling, the feeling, you know, that I'll be back when the day is new, and I'll have more ideas for you, and you'll have things you'll want to talk about, I will, too. You always make each day such a special day. You know how? By just your being you. Only one person in the whole world like you. That's you yourself. I'll be back next time. Bye bye.
3: Today's entertainment has been brought to you in part by Galito's Restaurant. Galito's specializes in Portuguese cuisine. In addition to these delicacies, Galito's offers pasta, steaks, seafood, and chops. A full-service bar includes wines, beers, and spirits to complement your meal. Galito's offers casual ambiance at the bar or their dining room. Galito's also has a private banquet room for social events with a party package to accommodate your budget. Galito's also offers seasonal cafe seating. Galito's is located at 29 Elm Avenue in Mount Vernon, New York, conveniently located across from the Mount Vernon East Train Station. You can call Galito's at area code 914-668-0100. Once again, the number is area code 914-668-0100. For information on reservations, or go to the website at www.galitosrestaurant.com. Enjoy your dining experience.